Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Happy Friday to all of you, no matter where you may live in the world. But I do know that for some of you whom are um, listening in, it could already be Saturday. But, but then again, that all depends on where you might be living in the world. But I do have to remind myself that uh, it's not just uh, different time zones in the United States, but uh, different time zones uh, throughout the world. And I was um, impressed to um, find out that I uh, picked up another nation. I'm always impressed when I can get um, other nations uh, to come along and uh, listen in on my podcasts. And I'm not trying to flaunt that, folks. Uh, But I will tell you that uh, I'm now at 67 nations. And I don't take that for granted. I've been very uh, thankful and fortunate to have had such a strong base and not just a strong base of nations, but um, ardent uh, listeners and supporters like you all whom have made um, the biggest difference in the world. So no matter where you live, whether it's in the United States or, say, in Great Britain, uh, France, uh, Ireland, Australia, Japan, I mean, the list could go on and on. But I do want to thank all of you for uh, making my job all the more um uh, worth uh, relevant in terms of being on the air, regardless of the uh, book topic series we have discussed. But the most important thing is that uh, all of you have been, you know, doing a great job of listening and taking in the information that I um, present to you all, because I know that many of you all, yes, are familiar with um, a handful of the subjects that I have uh, discussed since uh, coming on the air back in June of 2020. But all of you can say that you've walked away learning things that you didn't know before. That's the, um, the great thing about uh, history is that there's always something new to learn. And while, yes, there are things to hist- about history that aren't always pleasant, the most important thing we can continue to do is learn about those um, unfortunate circumstances, but make sure that they don't repeat themselves not only in the present day, but going forward in the future. Well, I will have to tell you all that we are now at the um, climax, or rather I should say the epilogue, to the uh, current uh, book topic podcast series that we have been discussing, being uh, Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. I must say this has been quite a ride. And of course, as they always say, all good things in life have to come to an end. But I will tell you this, that uh, when we're done with this um podcast series topic, being that this is our the epilogue episode, I'm still going to be on the air, but it will uh, we will be venturing into a new series. So, you know, like with any uh, book topic series discussion, there's always a starting point, but at some point uh, it does have to come to an end. But I must say that after um, this is going to be the 11th episode of this uh, topic discussion we've been doing, but it's well been, uh, to me, it's all been well worth the while. And that, and that to me is what matters more than anything else. So what all is there to this, to the epilogue of Rebels at Sea other than, other than the end? Well, we will uh, learn in this uh, final episode about whether or not privateering went beyond the American Revolutionary War. In other words, were there some other wars in which uh, America herself was involved in, where um, she had to turn to uh, privateering. We will also uh, learn about um, when, in fact, America 
stopped um, using privateering as a means of uh, justifiable defense. Uh, we will also learn in this uh, final um, podcast um, segment about um, about uh, unique people, most notably uh, the Jerry family of Massachusetts, that fellow named Elbridge Jerry. I'm sure some of you probably um, remember my uh, mentioning his name from other podcast topic discussions, but I do recall uh, discussing um, about Elbridge Jerry much earlier on about um, his um, involvement in uh, spearheading uh, the privateering movement. And then we will also um, learn about that um, ship, that most notorious of all British uh, prison ships, the uh, HMS Jersey. I know that was a very uh, powerful episode, to say the least. And um, when we do talk about the HMS Jersey in this uh, podcast segment um, topic, discussion we are going to learn about really what happened to the ship because i could tell you this much it is no longer around which on one hand is a good thing but i'm sure many of you are probably wondering uh, what really did in fact happen to it um, uh, centuries ago uh, when the american revolution itself was going on so We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's uh, get this show on the road for the epilogue to Rebels at Sea, Privateering in the American Revolution by Eric J. Dolan. Here we go. Uh, What did the United States and Great Britain go about doing on November 30th, 1782? Well, it turns out that both nations signed or what we, they went about signing a startup or um, introduction um, series of articles in the eventual lead-up to peace. So does it sound like that the United States and Britain now want to become the best of friends? I don't know if they want to... I don't think Britain's interested in becoming friends with her former 13 colonies, or with her former 13 North American colonies just yet, but Britain now knows that the war is no longer in her favor, and now... Britain knows that she needs to start pursuing a different course, and that would be to uh, engage in um, startup um, articles, intro- startup introduction articles that will lead towards an eventual uh, peace agreement. But just before 1782 ended, King George III finally went about acknowledging. America's uh, 13 colonies as free, sovereign, and independent states. Perhaps King George III finally realized that his former subjects, that his former subjects, while yes, they may not have had the same build and uh, make of the world's mightiest empire being that of his own uh, nations uh, in terms of being the mightiest army and, and navy, but yet a ragtag group of uh, soldiers were able to come together through, the, through all the highs and lows of the seven-year war, or let alone eight-year war, I ought to say, and still be able to defeat the world's mightiest empire. So yes, just before 1782, just before 1782 ended, King George III finally did go about acknowledging America's uh, 13 colonies as free, sovereign, and independent states. Uh, 
And as for the Articles of Peace between U.S. and Britain, it did not get finalized before 1782 ended. And I'm sure some of you are thinking, well, why not? Well, we have to go to January 20th of 1783. What's going on there? Well, Britain and France have to come together and they have to sign their own beginning peace article agreements. You know, who's against uh, Britain? Well, who was against Britain in the Seven Years' War? France. Who still has hostilities towards Britain, knowing that, um, knowing that, the, uh, that the French were forced to um, give up all that land in the Ohio Valley and along uh, various um, land, um, what do you call it, various land uh, holdings along the Great Lakes? France. So Britain and France have to come together to conduct their own beginning uh, peace article uh, agreements. So it's easy to assume that that war's end involves only Britain and the United States. Well, who was allying with the United States? France. So France has to do uh, her part um, in order to um, make sure that when this war ends that everyone you know, you may not have to leave on the grandest of terms, but there has to be some form of um, peace uh, agreement. September 3rd, 1783, the Treaty of Paris was signed, marking the Revolutionary War's formal end. Vessels that were built for um, intended privateering purposes were refitted out as commercial ships whom would soon go about transporting American-made goods to ports near and far where the American flag now could fly high and mighty, which meant that the American flag could truly symbolize, it truly could be symbolized as uh, a legitimate, um, not only so much as a legitimate flag, but America can now be seen as a legitimate nation, um, an actual nation that um, can make her presence be known on the world stage. Now, we should keep in mind, folks, that even after um, the Treaty of Paris is signed in September of 1783, we must keep in mind that America is not anywhere close to becoming a um, a first world nation or let alone a superpower we're going to have to wait really until almost the the latter part of the 19th century in the post-civil war era and uh, right around the time the 1890s begin when america really starts to um when the united states of america really uh, becomes what we now know as a, a first world um, superpower nation which forefather started out supporting the practice of privateering during the Revolutionary War, but yet he came to oppose it once the United States emerged victorious? Believe it or not, folks, that answer was uh, Benjamin. The answer is Benjamin Franklin. And before I uh, explain why Benjamin Franklin um, had opposed uh, privateering after uh, the war's end. We should keep in mind that Benjamin Franklin was one of uh, five uh, men whom were in Paris who uh, went about um, who went about over about signing the uh, Treaty of Paris as well as approving it. So, besides Benjamin Franklin, the other four members of the uh, American delegation were uh, 
one of Benjamin Franklin's sons, uh, William um, Templeton um, Franklin uh, Jr. Then we had uh, John Adams, John Jay, and uh, Henry Lawrence. So early 1783 saw uh, Benjamin Franklin write to a fellow by the, by the name of Richard Oswald, who was the British Peace Commissioner. Franklin wrote about um, wanting to propose um, a measure that would be uh, geared towards abolishing uh, privateering altogether. Franklin saw the practice as one which robbed um, merchants, not just merchants as individuals, but their livelihoods on the waters. I could see how, because think about it, if you're a merchant uh, and, you're, and you've got goods on your vessel and the crew is getting them from point A to final destination, all of a sudden privateers raid your vessel and, and you have nothing to sell, it, in a sense, you are your livelihood has is could be robbed at any time, without any forewarning. So for Benjamin Franklin, I can truly see how uh, privateering does rob one not just so much from an individual standpoint, but it robs the merchantmen of their economic livelihood. And if too many uh, robberies <laughs> occur, or acts of privateering occur on the waters then it could be fair to say in Benjamin Franklin's mind that some businesses may simply just fold, collapse. They might even become bankrupt. So Britain, however, as much as Bren Benjamin Franklin would like for uh, privateering to, to be um, officially abolished, Great Britain, on the other hand, remained uh, steadfast behind uh, her position on privateering as the Royal Navy valued all of the practices advantages. Kind of like how the Americans um, remained steadfast behind what privateering had to offer given just how small our Navy was given that it never exceeded over a hundred vessels. Now uh, there was a treaty that was signed, uh, another, rather I should say another treaty was signed two years after the um, Treaty of uh, Paris from 1783. We have to go to September 10th of 1785, and I didn't know about this treaty until having read the book. But on September 10th of 1785, a treaty, a treaty <laughs> known as the Treaty of Amity and Commerce was signed between the United States and the Kingdom of Prussia, which is now uh, part of present-day Germany. The treaty recognized the United States as an independent nation and promoted trade between France and the United States. The treaty established a military alliance against Britain, and rightfully so. The treaty contained a clause, and what do I mean by clause? How about a separate article? The clause that was uh, contained in this treaty pertain to um, abolishing and outlawing the practice of privateering, not altogether, but only if, but it pertained to uh, the, abolishing the practice of privateering involving the nations of U, uh, involving the nations of the United States and Britain. So the clause basically um, emphasized abolishing the practice, in the event the United States and Britain ever went to war against each other. So if the United States and Britain were to ever go to war against each other, 
the pri they cannot engage in acts of privateering against one another. But I will say this, in 1785, I don't think um, the United States ever thought that somewhere down the road there would be another uh, conflict with Britain. June 21st, of, June 21st, 1788 is important. Why is that important, folks? Well, what took place, what was going on, say, say a year before 1788? Delegates from all 13 um, states, or rather 12 of the 13 states came, because no one from Rhode Island came down to Philadelphia, but delegates from the other 12 states came together in Philadelphia to hammer out a different system of government that still exists today in America, but most important of all, a document, a document that has withstood the test of time. It, is, um, it has uh, seen its uh, shares of highs and lows in terms of how it's been uh, interpreted. I'm talking about the U.S. Constitution, folks. June 21, 1788, the United States Constitution officially was ratified thanks to New Hampshire becoming the ninth state voting in favor. Because New Hampshire became the ninth state in uh, voting in approval of the Constitution, the Constitution itself is now a legal binding document. And uh, ironically, uh, Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution gave Congress the powers of declaring war, granting letters of marquee, to rules about captures on land and water. Interesting about letters of marquee, but the reason for that, folks, was because in 1787, I, I think it's fair to say in 1787, the forefathers and the delegates who were there all felt that privateering probably needed to stay. Um, it needed to stay um, as a measure because, you know, who's to say that we, who's to say over time that we might have a sufficient sized navy that can go head to toe with some of the uh, more powerful nations in the world like Britain. But we need to have some kind of uh, backup in case we are ever at war. And how true that uh, was for the time in which uh, the Constitution was uh, first enacted. Now, uh, what did um, the United States Congress go about doing on June 18, 1812? Well, along party lines, Congress declared war on England. What do you know? America, even after almost 30 years from when the time the Treaty of uh, Paris was signed, ending the American Revolutionary War altogether, what do you know? 30 years later, we're back at, we're back at square one. But I will say this, folks. The, con the War of 1812 was something that just didn't happen overnight. It was a war that had probably been brewing for quite some time. Basically, um... Congress declared war on England primarily upon her actions along the high seas, which had interfered with Americans' rights to navigate the waters freely. So really what it was, folks, was that one of the main reasons, there were other reasons, but one of the primary reasons for why Congress 
declared war, even though it was on party lines, was because Britain had been uh, constantly harassing American um, ships um, going to and from uh, the waters of the Atlantic Ocean. And basically, not only were they harassing our ships, but they were harassing um, our sailors, our, our Navy men, to the point where they went about engaging in what's, what we know as impressment. They were basically capturing our sailors, you know, with no means of probable cause, going on to our vessels, capturing um, seamen, and forcing them uh, to fight alongside the British against their own will, given that Britain claimed that they were um, facing a shortage of available um, men at home in England who were willing to, um, whom were willing to fight. I don't know just how true that claim really was, but Britain was doing everything in her power to make life uh, miserable for American um, crewmen along the high waters. So that was a primary reason for why, um, for why uh, we ended up uh, declaring war on England. But shortly after Congress's uh, war declaration, Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution came into play where letters of marquee were issued, meaning privateering once again took center stage given just how small America's naval fleet stood. June 26th of 1812, Congress authorized privateering and President James Madison authorized, he ended up authorizing 526 privateering commissions with the majority coming from Massachusetts, Maryland, and New York. You know, as brilliant of a statesman uh, James Madison was, if many of you don't know a whole lot about the War of 1812, uh, I'll tell you this much. It truly was America's second war for independence. We must keep in mind that the American Revolutionary War was more about political independence. The War of 1812 is really about economic independence, but it also is about um, defending what we now know as the Northwest uh, Territory. And, of course, uh, Nine years before uh, America declared war on um, England in 1803, Ohio would be uh, admitted to the Union as the um, 17th state. But Ohio obviously marked the start of uh, westward expansion. And of course, uh, by 1812, uh, we still have what is called the Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Wisconsin Territory. But we are also facing a crisis in that um, if in that westward expansion is struggling because we are uh, facing uh, hostilities along the frontier with Native um, Americans, Native American tribes who have aligned themselves with the British. And even though Britain said that they would um, leave um, forts that were stationed along the Great Lakes, it turns out they didn't. Britain still had a uh, presence along um, a majority of our Great Lakes, as well as um, a broad presence in the Northwest Territory. So really, in a sense, we, this, it's not so much a war about, it, not only is it a war about economic independence, it's also a war about, um, really about national security and, um, and not just having multiple Americas, but really it was about seeing to it that America was one. One America. 
not one America being on the eastern seaboard and then having territory uh, left and right still in the hands. I'm not trying to sound political, folks. Don't get me wrong on that. But really, if you, but this is what I'm trying to best describe to you all about the War of 1812 in terms of how, um, yes, it's often been seen as a forgotten conflict, but really it's about um, the long-term survival of the United States, if that tells you anything right there. Now, uh, Lloyds of London determined that American forces captured uh, 1,175 British vessels. Weekly Register reported 2,300 British vessels taken, or rather I should say seized. Although the United States Navy started out small at the beginning of the War of 1812, over time, before war's end, she expanded and prevailed to where 250 British vessels got captured. I must say that here, uh, it could be fair to say that Privateering may have become um, another uh, savior, even though it's for a different war, but it could be that privateering once again is becoming, is proving that it still is relevant and can still be of use in times of war. How about this question here? Come following decades after the War of 1812, did many well-known American political figures come out in support of doing away with privateering as an appropriate means of waging war. Uh, yes, uh, one uh, politician in particular was John Quincy Adams, uh, the son of uh, John Adams. He was a, a strong opponent of uh, privateering. However, 1856 um, is a, a unique um, time. Well, for one, we're just five years shy of uh, of a terrible uh, civil war that almost could have broken the, the Union apart once and for all, and thank heavens that didn't happen, but uh, in 1856, the United States missed an opportunity to abolish uh, the practice of privateering altogether. April of 1856 saw 55 nations, which included France and England, all come together in signing what was called the Paris Declaration Rep respecting maritime law. This, um, what you call this, um, we could call it, I guess, in a sense, a treaty, but this uh, measure sought to eliminate privateering. The United States was not one of the participants in the treaty, given that the nation itself still had a small navy and insisted on wanting to keep the means of using privateers for all future wars. Of course, even all future wars sound vague. So, the United States simply is not ready to give up on a practice whose outcomes helped bring the nation itself onto the greater forefront. I wonder how, um, I, I have to wonder, um, will privateering itself even come into play during um, that, that infamous United States Civil War? Well, I think we're going to find out here uh, right now, folks. So here we go. Would privateering come back to life in the United States during the period of the Civil War between the states? It turns out, folks, yes. Uh, shortly after Confederate forces fired on Fort Sumter, South Carolina, and Fort Sumter is located in Charleston, 
Jefferson Davis, President of the Confederate States, ordered a proclamation enabling Southerners to apply for letters of marquee, given that the Confederacy had no navy of its own at the start of the war, whereas the Union, or I should say the North, had a fleet of 42 warships. The Confederacy basically felt that privateering was the only uh, viable option which could uh, be seen as a which could be seen as a true way of inflicting damage on um, the North's maritime commerce. Kind of like how um, it's fair to say that in the um, Revolutionary War as well as the War of 1812, what did the Americans, what were the Americans able to do? They were able to inflict um, extensive damage on Britain's maritime commerce. But now we're in a situation where America is at war with herself and um, a handful of uh, states in the South have now seceded, and they are now the Confederate States of America. And what do you know? They now see privateering as the most um, viable option that would disrupt the Union's uh, means of uh, transporting goods up and down the waters. Union forces saw uh, Confederate privateersmen in the same manner as Britain portrayed American privateersmen during the Revolutionary War. So, in other words, what did um, Union forces um, see Confederate privateersmen as? Pirates who must be hanged. No buts, no ifs. They just simply must be hanged. Well, there was a, um, a vessel known as the Savannah. The Savannah was a one one-time Charleston uh, pilot boat. She was the first vessel to obtain a Confederate letter of marquee to becoming the first privateer, or I should say Confederate privateer, getting taken by uh, Union forces. June 3rd, 1861, and that's not too terribly long after uh, the first uh, shots were fired at Fort Sumter, which happened in uh, April of 1861, so June 3rd, 1861, uh, the Confederate uh, vessel Savannah surrendered to U.S. Brig Perry. Thirteen Confederate sailors, folks, were taken to New York City where they were placed in chains for crowds, for crowds of people to see and then went um, inside, or I should say onward, to face trial for piracy. Well, once Jefferson Davis once Jefferson Davis learned about this, he was furious. Not just furious 101, uh, he was beyond furious 101. He exploded in a great state of rage after learning of these 13 Confederate sailors' um, state of imprisonment to receiving poor treatment. He retaliated by saying, Something like, you know, should Confederate privateersmen captured by Union forces be hanged for piracy, the South itself would engage by hanging equal number of all Union prisoners available. Davis's threat tactics worked to where Confederate privateersmen already imprisoned in New York City got instead treated as POWs, prisoners of war. 
versus being that of pirates. So it turns out, though, in the end, that these uh, 13 um, Confederate sailors did get exchanged via letter of, of agreement for Union prisoners. So in other words, the Union complied and did not go about doing something that was that would be seen as so unthinkable. And what most people don't realize, folks, is that there were many in uh, New York City who had strong ties to uh, the southern states before the war broke out, and a lot of that was just due to economic um, uh, commerce uh, purposes. Uh, that's as far as I'll go right there, but that is something. But we do forget that um, that nor some northern cities uh, had such strong economic relations with uh, southern states that some were not w willing to to want to go to war out of fear that they could lose those uh, economic uh, business ties. You know, there again, you know, no matter what war it is, I mean, we do forget that um, it's not just the Rev American Revolutionary War, but it's also the Civil War. I have to be reminded that, um, that war itself tears families apart. It tears families apart to where you know, two or three members of a family are on one side and the rest of the family is on the other. So I can't imagine even, um, what do you call it, in 1863 as Abraham Lincoln's speech, you know, part of the Gettysburg Address speech being four score and seven years ago. Here we are 87 years later from 1776 to 1863. None of our forefathers ever would have imagined whom had signed the Declaration of Independence that one day America would be at such a would be at such great conflict amongst each other that there would be a war that could ultimately um, divide the Union in half, not just for a short period of time, but perhaps uh, long term. And yes, as tragic as it was that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, many historians now know that there was more, that there were more more um, attempts on his life than we have uh, previously um, assumed. Uh, one uh, documentary I saw on television, um, I learned that there had actually been a total of five assassination attempts on Lincoln before um, John Wilkes Booth uh, finally uh, did the unthinkable. But historians also know that had uh, Lincoln been assassinated before the Civil War ended, it's very unlikely that whoever would have replaced him could have uh, gone about saving the Union, that is, the country as a whole, in the same manner that Lincoln himself did. Many historians now believe that if Lincoln had been assassinated before the war ended, that um, that whoever would have succeeded him would have made um, compromises with the South to where there still would have remained uh, the Confederate States of America. And basically there would not have been uh, a United States of America as we um, knew it then, even um, in the midst of a, a terrible war from within coming to an end. But what about in today's um, modern day time? We just don't know, but there again, we need to be reminded that um, that throughout um, America's history, that um, life itself has been fragile, and that there have been probably more than one instances where um, our country may not have um, survived. But here we are, 
even after what almost 247 years we're we're still a young nation but we are still here so um whereas britain didn't hang any um american privateersmen during the revolutionary war the same was applied for the north whom did not hang southern privateersmen during the duration of the civil war the aftermath of the civil war led to the united states' agreement to adhere by terms of the Paris Declaration from uh, refraining altogether from not partaking in any uh, measure of privateering. Although the United States as a nation uh, had not formally signed the Paris Declaration uh, back in 1856. So at least we can say that uh, the United States has recognized um, that uh, privateering is something that's kind of uh, outlived its purpose. Maybe it's just seen as something that's no longer relevant. Well, now we're going to uh, talk about uh, that guy um, who I mentioned early on, his name being that of uh, Elbridge Jerry. Some of you may know uh, a great deal about him. Some of you may not know a whole lot about him, and that's okay. But I will tell you this much, uh, for those of you who don't know a whole lot about Elbridge Jerry or don't even know the guy, you're going to be blown away by some uh, things about him because there is something that still resonates to this day that we have him to thank for. So, what became of Elbridge Jerry, whose family was of prominent status in Marblehead, Massachusetts with regards to the merchant uh, shipping trade industry? Well, besides helping draft uh, the bill which allowed for privateering in Massachusetts to become a reality for those whose livelihoods were hampered by um, the Boston Port Act of 1774, Elbridge uh, Jerry oversaw business contacts be made in France and Spain involving acquisitions of munitions like gunpowder, including an assortment of all various uh, supplies. Uh, Mr. Jerry oversaw seeing ships get sent to uh, ports up and down America's uh, coastlines to partaking in uh, financing privateering operations against British shipping. I should mention to you all that Elbridge Jerry was a signer to the Declaration of Independence. He served in the Continental Congress from 1776 to 1780. He was very influential in persuading several delegates to support the Declaration of Independence's passage. So, wouldn't it be fair to say that um, in the days, or perhaps in the few weeks that led up to July 4th being the day that we officially declared our separation from Britain, it's probably fair to say that Elbridge Jerry was probably um, going door-to-door meeting with uh, other delegates uh, from various, uh, what we would think of in today's time as subcommittees. But he was, uh, think about it, he, we can almost say that he was like his own version of being a lobbyist. He was working around the clock to uh, persuade those whom were part of the moderate faction to uh, come to the realization that no matter how hard we've tried with the Olive Branch petition, you know, King George III doesn't want to budge Parliament doesn't want to budge. Yes, there are those 3,000 miles across the ocean who sympathize with us, but for all those who sympathize with us 3,000 miles across the ocean, 
they are still in the minority. So, yes, Elbridge Jerry um, was uh, very influential in persuading several delegates whom were probably holding out till the very end to uh, finally uh, change their mind once and for all and going about um, go and going about moving forward with uh, declaring separation from England once and for all. Now, um, we also should uh, remind ourselves that uh, Mr. Jerry did attend the uh, Constitutional Convention of 1787 in Philadelphia. Now, there are there were 39 men who signed uh, the document. They know that 55 originally showed up, but 16 men didn't. I know that Mr. George Wythe of Virginia was unable to sign uh, because he had to leave uh, early to uh, go back to Virginia to attend to his, uh, to his um, wife, who was uh, failing in health, and sadly she uh, passed away, being uh, Mrs. Elizabeth uh, Talaferro Wythe. So... Um, the, the irony behind why uh, Mr. Elbridge Jerry did not um, sign the United States Constitution, it turns out he was one of three men whom did not sign the document because at the time it was signed, there was not a uh, Bill of Rights being our first ten amendments. You know, Bill of Rights, folks, like First Amendment, freedom of speech, free freedom of the press, the right to assemble a petition, that wasn't included in 1787. However, um, within a few years after um, the Constitution has been uh, ratified by the states, Elbridge Jerry does um, get a, a big breakthrough. He gets elected to Congress. He gets um, he's serving in the first uh, Congress. George Washington is now our uh, is the uh, nation's first um, president. So, what does Elbridge Jerry do? Well, he, uh, he goes about um, being heavily involved in drafting and passing, and going about, rather I should say, being heavily involved in the drafting to the final passage of the Bill of Rights. And of course, Mr. James Madison of Virginia, we do have him to thank also. He is really, in a sense, Mr. James Madison is the, found, is the, the father of our Constitution, and um, Really, in a sense, without James Madison, it might be hard to, it would be kind of hard to uh, say that um, it, it, it's more than likely that without James Madison that we probably would have a constitution as well. Most people don't realize that even James Madison himself um, was doing extensive research on why um, republics from ancient civilization times failed, why republics from centuries years ago succeeded. In other words, how and why did republics um, fail? How and why did republics still hold their ground in, um, in times of uncertainty? So James Madison was trying to find out the hows and the whys behind why uh, past governments failed and what our new nation could do to ensure that um, we didn't make the same mistakes. Now, as for the other two men who did not... Um, signed the Constitution in 1787 uh, because it didn't include a Bill of Rights. Those two men were Virginians, Mr. George Mason and Mr. Edmund Randolph, in case any of you were curious to know. 
Now, uh, Elbridge Jerry was originally, he started out being originally opposed to political parties. Of course, even George Washington, when he stepped down from the presidency in 1797, his farewell speech uh, included uh, the dangers of political parties and what they could do if, um, if partisanship got the better of both parties to where delegates could not come together and work out um, issues that were of uh, pressing concern. However, by 1800, Mr. Jerry identified himself as a Democratic Republican, or rather I should say a Jeffersonian Republican, in 1810, he won election to the Massachusetts uh, governorship post. In his second term, uh, the Republicans, or the Jeffersonian Republicans, were in control of the state legislature, which eventually led uh, Mr. Jerry himself to become more partisan. In 1812, listen to this one, folks. This is the one that um, is probably the most uh, riveting of them all, because it still exists today. In 1812, Mr. Jerry, or rather I should say Governor Jerry, signed a bill resulting in a partisan district heavily favoring his party, being the Democratic-Republican Party, and leaving the opposition, the Federalists, out um, pretty much out to dry with little or no voice or input. This partisan district became known as an example of gerrymandering, which remains to this day as one of the dirtiest political um, practices in American politics. So whenever you hear of gerrymandering, folks, who do you have to thank? Mr. Elbridge Jerry. And there was a political cartoon when uh, Jerry was governor portraying the um, district. The district was, fate, was, um, was the equivalent of a salamander. It was so big that it uh, left everyone out who was of the opposing party, or simply those who um, opposed Elbridge Jerry. So, when you th hear of gerrymandering, folks, you think of Elbridge Jerry. When did uh, British forces officially pull out from uh, New York? Well, uh, sometime around late 1783. As for the HMS Jersey, the most notorious British prison of warship used for uh, storing patriot soldiers to navy men and privateersmen, she got abandoned and burnt by none other than the British. Well, I'm sure that many uh, Americans were relieved to know that that the HMS Jersey is no longer uh, was no longer around when it got burnt including the same for the other uh, prison uh, warships. But the damage, in terms of the emotional scars, probably never left um, countless others whom had probably lost loved ones aboard those uh, prison ships and probably didn't even know that maybe they even were placed on a prison ship. For many of those families, they probably were under the assumption that their loved one um, died on the battlefield, well, American Heritage, uh, being a U.S. history magazine dating back to 1947, went about publishing firsthand uh, reports of imprisonment aboard the HMS Jersey in August of 1970, almost 53 years ago, folks. 
Ten years later, come 1980, American Heritage issued reports of imprisonment from various British prison ships um, and its findings from uh, May of 1980. Now, what's uh, unique about October of 1902? Being 120, being 121 years ago. Well, in October of 1902, the USS Connecticut was under construction at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. A newspaper known as the Brooklyn Daily Eagle confirmed the HMS Jersey had been located while work itself was already underway for a new uh, dock. The wood from the HMS Jersey was spotted exactly where she was burned afloat. You know, remember she was a hulker or a hulk, meaning that it was a vessel that that uh, stayed afloat but never uh, went out, went back out to sea. It was one of those vessels that had seen its time, but it just stayed um, uh, intact in uh, one place. So um, basically, the uh, report confirmed that um, that the vessel uh, burned while afloat after the British um, abandoned. Uh, to sh setting the ship on fire. Now, this is what I found really uh, unique about the USS Connecticut. She served as a flagship. And what is a flagship? It's uh, another term for a commanding officer, or in other words, a com head commanding ship that leads a larger uh, group of uh, naval ships. In other words, it could be a party of um, six or more uh, naval ships, but you have that one that is the flagship. Well, and that being the USS Connecticut. Now, in uh, around mid-1907, the USS Connecticut had the honor of serving as a flagship for the Jamestown Expedition, which honored the 300th anniversary of Jamestown Colony's founding. You know, and to think it was 16 years ago that um, the Jamestown, that Jamestown, Virginia, celebrated its 400th anniversary. In other words, it's a quadricentennial. And I remember very well the General Assembly um, uh, holding its uh, session at Jamestown uh, celebrating um, the occasion. And, of course, we must be reminded, folks, that uh, it was at Jamestown, Virginia, where, um, where North America's first elected um, legislative uh, body held its um, sessions, not just its session, but it, the first uh, democratic governing body, first democratic um, institution of government, took place in 1619 at Jamestown, Virginia. This might sound hard to believe, folks, but if I am alive in the year 2057, I will get to see another milestone. In other words, I will get to see... Um, Jamestown celebrate its 450th anniversary. I don't know what the world would look like in 2057. I don't know if 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 it would be a good thing or a bad thing, but if I am alive in 2057, I'll be 78 years old, and I would I could say that I got to see uh, Jamestown celebrate its 450th anniversary. Now, um, as for the remains of all whom uh, died aboard uh, the British uh, prison ships, they got reinterred, or what's called reburied, at Fort Greene Park in Brooklyn, New York. 
after the original 1808 burial vault nearby the Brooklyn Navy Yard had collapsed. We go to 1908, 100 years after the original uh, burial ceremony had been done. The prison ship Martyrs Monument, which still exists to this day, it serves as a war memorial at Fort Greene Park. It was dedicated in 1908 um, in, in remembrance of the more than 11,500 American prisoners of war whom died while in captivity aboard 16 British prison ships, folks, 16. The remains of a small portion of those uh, British prisoners whom perished on the ships got interred in a crypt, or rather I should say a stone chamber that, um, that was a... Uh, placed beneath the monument's base. Prisoner remains included ships of the HMS Jersey, Scorpion, Hope, Falmouth, Stromboli, and I don't believe it was named after the um, Italian uh, food Stromboli, folks, to uh, Hunter. Now, I haven't been to that memorial up in a... Up in a uh, Fort Greene Park, but I'm sure that if I saw it in person, it would uh, send chills down my spine, knowing just how many American prisoners in the thousands died uh, sacrificing their own lives to ensure that their fellow brothers or comrades who were still uh, fighting the war along the waters, as well as along the battlefields, uh, remained um, alive and safe and being able to carry out the fight uh, for uh, freedom, not just short-term, but uh, long-term, uh, for present and future uh, generations of Americans to enjoy. As we finish this up, I uh, will say this. The U.S. Constitution, folks, even to this day, still calls for, uh, for the government to hire privateers in times of war. But we must keep in mind that when the Constitution was written in 1787... America only had 13 states. There were only about 4 million people living in America. Philadelphia was the largest uh, city with probably about 40,000 people. Of course, our, um, the delegates rather who signed the Constitution knew that as time went along, America's population would expand. Um, wording in the Constitution, or let alone language itself, would be interpreted differently as uh, different generations came along. But little did they know when signing this document that one day, one day, somewhere in the future, America's Navy would evolve from being an infant fleet to becoming a powerful fleet where there simply would no longer need to be a demand for privateering, given that America herself now in the present day, has the most powerful Navy in the world today. Well, folks, we have uh, finished another um, great uh, book topic series uh, discussion, and thank you all for being uh, a part of this ride. I hope to be back on the air with you guys at some point soon. But when I am on the air again next, we will uh, be in another uh, book topic series, and I will make sure that it is one of... Um, relevant importance. Perhaps it might be a story about um, an individual whom we, you know, have learned about, not so much through, say, a, a past uh, 
podcast book topic series, but we've probably learned about, say, in a textbook or uh, through a television documentary. I don't know why I say that, but perhaps I'm... But perhaps some of you are itching to know, where do we go next? So I could tell you this much. It could be possible that we might be learning about someone whose um, presence um, was one of um, mixed controversies, perhaps. Well, if I tell you any more, I could end up giving away that surprise. And then many of you would say, well, what's the point in sharing this if you have given away the surprise now? Well, thank you again uh, for being such ardent listeners, and uh, without you guys, I don't know where I would be, but uh, you all have uh, made this happen. So uh, thank you again for um, for uh, listening and uh, helping me uh, become successful with uh, podcasting, because I wouldn't trade this hobby uh, for anything else. Take care for now and stay safe.